0: Hey welcome, everybody uh, to episode fifty one Live from my Drum Room. Um, today will be uh, part two of remembering Charlie Watts. I want to thank everybody who's watched and listened to part One and uh, for all the positive comments. and uh, i'm I'm glad that it uh, resonated with so many people. Um, it felt good to talk about it, and uh, so i'm I'm back with a, another installment. Uh, Of just some memories and some stories and some some, uh, things to share about Charlie. Um, I do want to also mention that um, since my last show, uh, I've created a Facebook group called the Charlie Watts Appreciation Group. And uh, anyone on Facebook can join it. I encourage everyone to join it. Um, Love to get a, you know, a nice big group there. The rules are really simple. There's just really two simple rule rules, and they are, um, one we're there to pay homage to Charlie and, you know, honor his memory and 2 don't be an asshole. It's pretty simple. Um, there's a zero tolerance, uh, for anyone who, who doesn't play by the rules. So, uh, but so far it's been great. I think we're up to over a thousand members in just a couple days. So it's great. So thank you. Who's ever anyone who's joined. And uh, if you haven't already, um, please join the group, Charlie Watts Appreciation Group. Um, I also wanted to mention that uh, if you don't know, I I did a show back in November of 2020, almost a year ago, uh, where I had Mike Edison on the show. And Mike wrote the fantastic book, Sympathy for the Drummer, Why Charlie Watts Matters. And... Mike and I had been talking a few weeks ago about doing a part two. We are going to do a part two uh, at some point. Um, but I just thought I'd remind everyone you can go back and look on my YouTube channel and find this. It's episode 17 from November 28th, 2020, where I spoke with Mike about this book and he shares a great story about Charlie calling him uh, thanks to Don McCauley, making Charlie aware of the book. Um, he, he, he called Mike and they had a nice chat on the phone. And, uh, and also I'm going to mention that um, I've made Mike's show uh, into a podcast. So you can now listen to it. If that's easier, download it as a podcast and you can find it in all the usual podcast places, Apple, Spotify, and all those other podcast formats. So um, I, I think I remember what I talked about last time. So I'm going to try not to repeat anything or too much. Um, I was going to maybe just take a a minute and talk about the, uh, the first time I saw the stones. I, so I I mentioned getting into the band in 1972 uh, through my sister, who was five years older, who is five years older. And she had actually got to see them that summer in July of 1972. I was a little too young uh, but by the time they came back three years later, 1975, I did. Uh, I was able to go and see them. They did two shows at the Boston Garden, two consecutive nights, June 11th and June 12th. I went to the first night. I I didn't look this up on the internet, but I, in my mind, I remember it being a Wednesday night. These are the things that crazy kids like me remember. I could be wrong about that, but the date was June 11th, 1975. And um, the old Boston Garden, if anyone, whoever doesn't, isn't familiar with uh, what that place was, it was a landmark. It was an arena where the Boston Bruins played and the the Boston Celtics. And, you know, it was a hockey arena, basically, or basketball arena, had no air conditioning. So during the summertime, it got really hot in that place. And that particular night, I remember my t-shirt. I I think I bought a Stones t-shirt there or I was wearing one. It was literally sticking to me. It was so hot and sweaty in that place. And of course I didn't care. And I think I got my ticket after a bunch of my friends got theirs for some reason. So we weren't sitting together. Um, Although I think we did end up sitting together by the end of the night, either I moved to where they were or they moved to where I was, but um I'll just share because because we're talking about Charlie and because there's lots of, uh, um, you know, no holds barred geeking out going on. I, you know, I was 14 years old. It was June of 1975. And um, I remember being in the room and when the first band finished, which I think was Billy Preston, who played with the Stones, I think he did like an opening. I think he opened the show. I, I vaguely remember that. I remember seeing Charlie's drums, his black nitron Gretsch drums being, you know, out in the open now where, where I couldn't see them before. And somebody, it must have been, I'm guessing Chooch McGee, maybe, uh, or possi- possibly Anne, uh, Ian Stewart. But um, yeah, it was before Chooch. Chooch wasn't there in 75. So it's probably Ian or someone hitting the drums and hearing them through the house, you know, when they just did the line check. And I remember thinking to myself, I can't really, this, this can't be happening. That can't really be Charlie's actual drum set. This is impossible. I can't be, you know, in the same room <laughs> as these guys. And, uh, and then when they finally came out, you know, and that's another story because in those days they'd come out really late. They'd make everybody wait a really long time between the warm-up band. And when they came out and they just got everybody into this frenzy and people, you know, throwing beach balls and balloons and all sorts of things happening in the seats. Um, but it really whipped up, whipped everybody into a mania by the time they came out. And, um, I I think they came on like close to 10 o'clock or something crazy like that. And they played two and a half hours, but, um, i remember sitting there for the first couple of songs just i was completely straight i didn't do anything no alcohol no drugs or anything um which is why i think i can remember a pretty good amount of that show that was 46 years ago but um i remember sitting there thinking that can't really be Mick jagger like this is i can't really be that close to these guys that i could throw a you know a cup of soda at them which i would never do of course Uh, so it was one of those surreal moments for me and and as i've said life-changing i mean i really like i got home i couldn't sleep getting home was another story too by the time we got out of the show the trains had stopped running and that's how we got there was public transportation and we had to call one of our parents i forget who wasn't one of mine but um Somebody came in to you know Boston to the to the garden and picked us up and drove us home at like it must have been one o'clock in the morning, uh, and it was a school night. <laughs> These were the things we did back then. Um, anyway, so so that's that's a sort of condensed version of of uh, the first time I saw them in 1975. But it really was just so uh, life changing for me, in that I actually saw them and I thought i may never see them again i mean this was maybe at that time i thought this is probably a once in a lifetime thing but i'm so glad i got to see them they came back three years later where they went on tour in 1978 and they skipped boston that year for whatever reason it was a a more scaled back tour i think it was fewer cities and they had a huge record some girls at that time and i never really understood why but um I don't think they came any closer than maybe New York or New York or New Jersey, on that tour. And I I didn't. That was the summer that I graduated from high school, and um, I didn't have the sort of wherewithal in me to to take a road trip somewhere to find them. So, didn't see them in '78. But I will say, um, and I think other people in the Boston area might remember this. WBCN was the was the big radio station at the time, and They, the stones were known for doing these surprise uh, gigs at, at clubs where they just show up and play. And there was a rumor WBCN was, I think having a little fun with all of us, but they said there was a rumor that they were going to play at the in square men's bar in Cambridge um, on a certain day. And so, and this was in the summer of 1978 and me and a couple of my friends drove into Cambridge and I'd never been to In Square Men's Bar, but we found it, and we sort of camped out there for the afternoon. And there might have been a couple of other people, but I think the people <laughs> working there got a kick out of us because they were—I think—they knew that there was this, you know, unfounded rumor out there that the Stones might do a surprise show. So we were sitting. There was a drum set set up that was nothing like Charlie's, and I remember my friends saying to me, "Is that—is that Charlie's drum drum set? No, it's not. Definitely not his drum set." So we stayed there for a while and I think we ended up just bagging it. And of course they never played there, but um, I'll fast forward to a a story. So I was working at this music store in Boston, Um, started working there in the end of 1979 and uh, in 1981, the Rolling Stones were rehearsing at Longview farms, a recording studio out in uh, Western mass getting ready for their 1981 tattoo you tour and it was right about this time, September of 1981. Um, Ian Stewart came into Worlitzer and bought Charlie uh, some drum heads and some hardware for me. I was working behind the counter. I recognized Stu instantly. I knew that the Stones had been buying some some gear from us at the music store, and. Um, And he came back to the drum department and he he couldn't believe that I knew who he was. I asked him to sign something. I don't know what I did with it, but um, he he couldn't believe that I knew who he was and that I wanted him to sign something. He's very funny. And I wrote a little note to Charlie and he told me that he would pass it along to Charlie. And I thought, okay, well, you know, well, sure. okay. now this is again, this is 1981. This is 40 years ago. I do have the receipt, and I'll show you that another time. Uh, I kept a a copy of the receipt of of the stuff that I sold to the Stones to Charlie that day, so I I can document that. And I think the date, it's coming up September 10th, I think, was the date, 1981. So um, anyway, they went on tour that year. They skipped Boston again, but they did play in Hartford, Connecticut, And uh, I went out there with my friends. Again, I didn't have a ticket for some reason. Um, I think it was a last minute thing that I was able to go. And I ended up buying a scalper ticket a couple of blocks from the venue. And I remember thinking or hearing at the time that they were going to really crack down on on scalpers. They were going to not let people without tickets within a certain perimeter. And sure enough, when I got there, I think there were Cops or security people or something not letting people past a certain point, but I did find someone selling a ticket, and it was getting close to showtime. And I, the way I left it with my friends is, I'll just meet you back at, at the car at the end of the night if I don't get in. But I was certain I, I was certain I would. I, I had I wasn't worried about it. When you're 20 or 21 years old, you don't really think about stuff like that. Anyway, I bought a ticket. I think I paid about 50 bucks. Uh, I was prepared to pay more than that, and it was actually a really good seat. Um, and it was a great show, and and it was a different kind of show. Again, they were kind of evolving at that point. It was a, they were sort of a different band than the last time I'd seen them in '75, for sure. You know, they 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 had changed stylistically, you could say. Um, but um, but that was you know that was a little adventure all in itself to go out there and see them in, in Hartford. I was glad I did. Um, And then they didn't tour again until 1989. And I thought I was actually going to meet Charlie that year. And I'll tell you why. I was working at Zildjian by that time. I'd started at Zildjian in that spring of 89 in May. And the Stones came through in October uh, on the Steel Wheels tour, 1989. And the band Living Color was opening that part of that leg of the tour. And Will Calhoun, the drummer, Uh, my very good friend today who I met a few months into working or actually very soon into working at Zildjian. But by the time the show came around, we were tight as could be. And he was inviting me to the show. Um, I brought my sister whose birthday was either the day of the show, October 1st or around that time. But I brought her as my plus one. I thought it was fitting since she was the one that got me into the stones, you know, all those years before that she could come with me. So We went, we saw them, uh, got there. um, It must have been after sound check. I was able to go up on stage and sit behind Charlie's drums for the first time and and get a good look at everything. And I remember being kind of floored by, you know, his old Speed King pedal and um, his cymbals, the crash that he played at that time, the 16 inch crash that you hear on all the songs I assumed was an old Zildjian A. It had that, thin a fast crash sound turns out it was a peisty 602 um with the inscription arbiter custom 602 and arbiter was a a drum shop music store in london that that basically peisty put their name on the symbol but that's where charlie bought it sometime around 1967 or 68 i think around 67 because he later told me that he cracked it in 2007 and he told me he'd had it for 40 years. So I would, I would bet, you know, he bought it around that time. Um, But anyway, it was a, it was a chance to sort of see his drums up close. I, I didn't get a picture, unfortunately, but, uh, and I didn't get to meet him that time. Uh, And then they came through again in 1994. And this time Lenny Kravitz was, um, that was the voodoo lounge tour. Lenny Kravitz was opening the sh- that leg of the, the tour and Cindy Blackman, my very good friend, Cindy Blackman Santana was playing drums with Lenny at that time. And she invited me to the show and, and she actually told me she had spoken to Charlie about me and said, um, my friend from Zildjian is coming tonight and Charlie, you know, he'd like to meet you. And Charlie said, yeah, I'd like to meet him. So I got there. I remember, and it was, the weather was really awful and, and, um, again, it was like in the fall, it was outside Foxborough Gillette stadium, Foxborough stadium. And Cindy said, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, I don't know where Charlie is. And, and, and when you're, when you're there to see the opening band at a stones show, you, you can only get so far into the layers of security that they have there. And, um, so basically, you know, my past that I had that Cindy had got me, Got me to a point you know got me into the lenny kravitz sort of realm of backstage but there was no getting beyond a certain point where the stones were and i certainly understood that i didn't i didn't think i'd be able to find my way back to find charlie i never even thought of it i thought maybe there'd be an introduction and so but it didn't work out and that was fine and i'll fast forward to um early 1997 um, they're recording in Los Angeles at Oceanway Studios, and they're recording the Bridges to Babylon record. And my very good friend, Kenny Aronoff, had been invited to play percussion on the record. And uh, my recollection of the story, basically, is that Kenny called me one morning. I think he hadn't gone to bed, basically. He called me, and he was so excited as Kenny is. He's just such an excited upbeat happy guy all the time. He couldn't contain himself because he'd just done a session with the stones. And, and I think Jim Keltner was there, of course, Charlie in the band and, and Don was, was producing that record who Kenny had done a lot of work with. So there was a, it made sense that Kenny would be called in to play percussion. And, um, and so through talking with Kenny, I said, you know, I'm going to try to reach out to Charlie's tech, Chooch McGee, who I don't know, but I know that's Chooch was a legend. You know, he'd been Charlie's tech at that point for 20 years. So I I knew who he was. So I left a message at Oceanway for Chooch. And I just left a message with my name and then I worked for Zildjian. And I, you know, I just wanted to talk to him if he had a minute. So sure enough, later that day, I get a call from Chooch, who was the, rest his soul, greatest guy man, just the greatest guy. I'm going to get choked up. And, um, I said, I've, you know, we've, we've uncovered these vintage symbols made in the 1940s. I gave a set to Ringo last year, and I'd love to give Charlie a set, no strings attached. Um, just as a, as a fan of Charlie's, I'd love to just, I know he loves old symbols. These are vintage, never played new old stock. Um, a Zildjian's that I know he would like, um, and she said, "Well, why don't you do this? Why don't you write a letter and explain to Charlie what it is that you want to do and what these are, rather than me try to explain it, and and send it to me, and I'll get it to Charlie." So I wrote the letter and I FedExed it out that day, and uh, we didn't. I probably could have faxed it, but I I thought it would be better to just. FedEx it with a letterhead and everything. And um, I went off on a clinic tour for like two and a half or three weeks with Dennis Chambers. It was actually, a, I, I remember it being a very long extended trip that I was leaving for in a day or two, but I was so happy to have done that before I left. I'm like, okay, I'm got that done. And that's We'll see what happens. I, a few days into my trip, I called in to get my messages at the office. And there was a message from Charlie Watts himself. Introducing himself. Hello, my name is Charlie Watts. I got you. I got a letter. Uh, I still have it. I recorded it. Um, maybe I'll play that another time. But I do have that voicemail that Charlie Charlie left me in the spring of 1997. Um. I don't know that I could listen to it right now because I'd probably lose it. <clears throat> but I sent the symbols when I got back. Um, Charlie was able to use one of the crashes, the 16, on the record before they wrapped up recording, which was great. He also asked for a special thin swish symbol that we made for him that he used on the B kit that tour. when uh, The kit that he had out in the front, you know, in the, the B stage, if anybody saw that, Rather than the usual UFIP China, there was a 20-inch Zildjian swish, very, very thin with rivets, um, as is China on that. Anyway, I'll fast forward to that October. They were playing at Giant Stadium in New Jersey, and I was in New York during that time. Cheech and I had stayed in touch throughout that time, knowing they were going to be on tour. And um, I was planning to see them in Boston at Foxborough Stadium. But ahead of that, those Boston shows, they were in New Jersey, and I happened to be in New York for business. So Chuch said, why don't you come down and uh, and meet Charlie at Giant Stadium? So I went down and uh, got there in the afternoon. Chuch brought me in. I was there for the sound check. And uh, afterward, I was kind of off to the side, and I, I, you know, I had watched the sound check, just kind of from, from afar, you know, from a, a safe distance and, uh, Charlie and Chooch are talking about something and Chooch sort of points to me and Charlie looks over at me and kind of gives me a like, a hello, nod, smile. I, okay. That's him. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> I'm thinking that's Charlie's cue to get the heck out of there. Um, and at that point, Chooch I think motioned me to come over. Uh, so I walked over and I met Charlie and he was unbelievably kind and gracious and thanked me for the symbols. And, you know, we chatted, had a very pleasant conversation and, um, you know, just he was happy to meet me. And, you know, I, I just was, I didn't, I didn't say much. (laughs) Um, and he, uh, you know, I, again, he was just very gracious and we, we spoke for a little bit. I hung around with Chooch. Uh, I think I watched a good deal of that show from behind the stage. I can't remember now because I. Yeah, I think I, I think maybe I had a, a past that let me sit out by the soundboard for some of it, but I I got into watching a lot of it from right where Chooch was, which was pretty great. Uh, but I did see Charlie one more time before before the band went on and he came over and said, hello again. And we chatted and he said, are you coming to the Boston show? And I said, I'm both shows. I said, there's two shows. I'll be at both. And he said, Oh, great. Then I'll see you there. And I, and I said, Charlie, by the way, um, there's a band playing at the regatta bar at a jazz club in Boston, the night before your first show on the Sunday night. Uh, it's, it's a Joshua Redmond trio and the drummer's name is Brian blade. And Joshua Redman is a tenor player. And, you know, I think you'd really love the band. And it's right in Cambridge, Mass, uh, Harvard Square, if you'd like to go. And he said, oh, um, I, I might be interested. You know, let me let me get back to you. Chooch has your number, right? And I said, yes, Chooch has my number. So that was that. And uh, so that was before the show. And then um, I went, I think that was like a Thursday night. I went home the next day. Over the weekend, on Saturday, Chooch called me and said, Charlie and I would like to come to the show at the the regatta bar. So I called the manager of the the club because it was sold out. And I trusted that he would not put the word out. But I said, um, Charlie Watts and his tech want to come to the show. Can we arrange some more seats? And he said, I'll take care of it. So... um, we went, I, I met them there and, and uh, I met Charlie and Chooch in the lobby and at the uh, Charles Hotel where the regatta bar is. And I told Brian ahead of time, Brian, Blay, that Charlie was coming and he was excited to meet him. And uh, the manager of the hotel brought us in through like a back entrance, through like a little hallway and brought us right to a table, right in front of Brian, right in front of the drums. And, uh, and it was great because not a lot of people really recognized Charlie, at least not right away. They did eventually, but it was jam packed. And, uh, you know, he, he kept a low profile. He was, was not a, you know, a very, um, certainly wasn't a flashy guy, you know? Um, but I remember we were sitting there and he said to me, what year he, Brian was playing an old Gretsch drum set round badge. Um, I'm trying to remember what color they might've been champagne sparkle. I can't remember what the color was, but it was an old Gretsch set, which of course, Charlie played. And he said, how old are those, what year do you think those drums are? And I said, I don't know. I said They're I'm guessing 19, some sixties, maybe I told him, I had a, a, an early sixties kid as well. And he said, he said, mine's a 57 My, I'll bet mine's older. And, uh, and I said, probably or something like that. So anyway, it was an amazing show. It was great. Afterward, we went back and said hello to Brian and and the entire band. And, um, and uh, one of the first things I think Charlie said to Brian is what year is your, what year is your kit? What year are those drums? And Brian said, Oh, it's a 63 or something or 64. And Charlie, (laughs) Charlie looked at me and said, I told you mine were older. And uh, it was just one of those, you know, drummer funny moments where he was excited about his drums being older than, than Brian's. <sighs> One of those things. Um, but I, the rest of the story goes like this. So he invites Joshua Redman, Christian McBride, bass player, and, and Brian to their gig the next night at Foxborough Stadium. And they happened to be in town. They, were, they had a meeting with their management office, Ted Curlin, the next day um so they were going to be in boston and they all accepted they said yeah we'd love to come so charlie said i'll set it up for you and uh i i remember getting to the gig and chooch saying to me um something like can you can you come with me chooch or someone got a call or maybe i did on my cell phone from brian that they were out front and couldn't get through one of the layers of security. So Chooch asked me to come with them to, to bring them backstage. So I went with Chooch and we brought um, Josh and, and Christian McBride and Brian blade backstage. But, but before that, before that, I was chatting with Charlie. And again, now this is only the maybe third or fourth time now that I've, it's still a very new thing meeting him. It's, you know, he remembered me and he, you know, we just seen each other the night before obviously at the show, but he was glad to see me and we're chatting and I swear he seemed almost a little nervous. And he said, "They're probably not going to come. They were just being polite when they, when they accepted the invitation to come. They, why would they want to come see this?" And I said, "No, Charlie. I really think they're going to come. I, I, Brian was excited about coming to see you play. I, I, they're going to come." And uh, it, it was just—he was so humble in that way. He was—he was thinking, you know. Why would these legit jazz guys want to come see me? And uh, and they did come. And one of the things I remember that was so funny was they get they come backstage, and the Rolling Stones have the most amazing, you know, elaborate catering situation set up back there. I mean, anything you can imagine, they have. And I remember Charlie <laughs> saying to uh, to Joshua Redmond. Joshua, can I get, can you, do you need anything? Would you like anything? He said, well, I, I'd love a cappuccino. And and it was almost like Charlie snapped his finger and a woman comes out of nowhere. And, you know, Charlie says he'd like a cappuccino. Like, yes, you know, goes off to make them the cappuccino. So it was, it's what you'd imagine it would be like back there, but he was, um, he was so happy to see them. And we, and we all sat together, um, Brian and Christian and and Joshua and myself and they were all digging the show. They were all sitting there just moving their feet, tapping their feet, grooving to it. It was um and I want to say that the next night when I saw Charlie for the second show, I told him I said they loved it, man. They they stayed for the whole thing. I mean, you know, when The Stones don't have anything after the show, so you your best bet is to get out of there during the last song to avoid the the throngs of people, you know, 60,000 people making a dash for their Car out of the parking lot. So we all sort of got out of there during the last song. And, uh, but I assured him, I said, they stayed the whole night. They were there the whole time. So, so that was a, that was an old story going back, um, to 1997, which was when I first met Charlie. And, um, yeah, so there's lots more, um, lots more stories. And if if you join the Facebook page that I mentioned, you'll see there's been lots of really cool pictures that have been posted. I've put some pictures up uh, through the years as other people have as well. And uh, maybe I'll come back another time and talk about some of those pictures that I've put up there with a little bit more detail. But um, I did put a picture up, I think when I first created the group of Charlie and myself it was taken at SIR in New York City in uh, early 1998, January 1998. So it was the continuation of that Bridges to Babylon tour, and um, Charlie, I, I again, I think I came to New York for the show, but I was there for some other business, as I would tend to be during that time, and um, I went to a rehearsal at SIR, but ahead of time, uh, we had made this this shadow box award for Charlie, a lifetime achievement award that Armin Zildjian, uh, the late Armin Zildjian had signed a symbol, one of those vintage symbols that said um, to Charlie, keep swinging, swinging all the best, you know, Armin Zildjian. And we made a little inscription on a plaque that said, um, you know, for your lifetime of, of um, appreciation of, you know, your lifetime of music and, Contribution to the arts and you know, some sort of inscription. So I'd arranged to present that to Charlie and we took a picture. Um, but um that was the first time I, I remember being in the um in the rehearsal room and and at SIR and and Charlie greeting me with this big hello. And he was like just so, you know, I I wasn't sure. It had been a couple of months since I'd seen him. He'd even remember who I was, but he said hello john nice to see you um and that was the first time he introduced me to keith and ronnie uh, who were just so kind you know so you know i think they thought like well if this guy's okay with charlie he's okay with us you know uh kind in the sense that they shook my hand and said hi nice to meet you you know hello with a smile on their face but um and I, and they ended up having a show, I think the next night or the night after that I saw at, uh, Madison square garden. And, and that was really cool because, you know, seeing the rolling stones anywhere, but Madison square garden, that's pretty special. They've had some pretty memorable, um, shows in their history there. So it was cool to see them there in 1998. Um, and that was the beginning of, of, you know, many, many more, I mean, basically every time they came through town from that time on um, I would go see them. And, uh, and there was never, ever a time, even as recently as two years ago at July of 2019, that it was ever taken for granted that it was ever um, anything that was remotely, um, you know, sort of going through the motions of it, if that makes sense. I mean, it was, always a special thing, not just to meet or to spend time with Charlie, that of course was so special. Um, But seeing the stones still had that same special feeling it had in 1975. The first time I saw them, there was still this magical adrenaline specialness to seeing them. There's, There's just, it's hard to explain it, but anybody who's seen them enough times knows what I'm talking about. You, you could see them a hundred or a thousand times. And I, th- I still think you'd have that same, um, you know, that same feeling I mentioned in my prior, um, show, remembering Charlie, the time that I saw them at Gillette stadium, the private show they did for the craft family. And, um, you know, that was a, that was a, a corporate gig, but it still had that same, kind of anticipation and you know it's the stones it's like there's something about being in that room with them that ignites a special kind of energy um and you know no matter how many times i i saw charlie or spent time with him before a show there was still that magical special feeling of like this is unbelievable that i'm I'm sitting here in this room with him, Uh, you know, and, and in the last probably 10 or 15 years of seeing them at various times, we'd be in his, in his dressing room. And, uh, and oftentimes it would just be me and him, him and I, um, and he'd have his practice pad and his sticks and he'd be kind of warming up, chatting And uh, just a surreal feeling. So um, anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up for now. Um, I appreciate you watching this. I hope you'll, uh, I'll I'll make this into a podcast. So I hope you'll download that. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll do another one of these at the very least, maybe even a couple more. And as I said, I'm, I am going to involve some friends other drummers that I know would love to talk about their uh, friendship and experience with Charlie and uh, how special he was to them. Um, I'll just say one more thing that I, I uh, played a last minute gig the other night with my band and uh, I had just bought these drums just a couple of months ago, these seventies Gretsch uh you know, vintage Gretsch drums that I, that I really love playing, but in honor of Charlie, the other night, uh, I brought out my black nitron kit, which, um, is probably not his most famous kit. His natural wood kit is his, this is for all you drummer geeks out there. Obviously everybody recognizes his natural wood round badge 57 kit that I was talking about earlier. Um, but in in my mind, the, the black drum set is what I remember because that's what he was using from 1972 until 78 when he got those um, older drums, the the wood finish kit. So that's my sort of. I I told him that years ago, and he kind of, um, you know, he sort of dismissed it. He, you know, he he's like, well, yeah, you know, I like these drums better, meaning his natural wood drums, but, um, but I can talk more about that another time as well. Some of the conversations we've had about his, his drums and, and, um, and cymbals. Uh, So thanks for watching this. Um, appreciate you tuning in. Don't forget the Charlie Watts appreciation group on Facebook and, uh, and don't forget to check out the Mike Edison show from November 28th, 2020 um uh, sympathy for the drummer why charlie watts matters and you can download that podcast episode as well so i'll see you soon thanks for watching if you've made it this far and um yeah thanks for remembering charlie see you soon